If you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50. As mentioned earlier, this is going to be our last uh, sermon in the book of Mark for at least two months. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50. I want to begin by reading the word of God and we'll pray and we'll go into the message. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go, to, go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you again for an opportunity to study the lesson from your son. And Lord, we know these are not just words that give us practical life advice, but these are the words of the living God that can sharpen us, that can humble us, that can cut off sin, that can mortify our convictions so that we can know um, you more. And Lord, help us as we look in this text. Give us a teachable heart so that we can see where our shortcomings are, the things in which you cause other people to stumble, or even ourselves. Guard our hearts and our minds so we can be pleasing to you. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Usually when I do sermon preps, I would get out of my seat and kind of pace around to kind of think about the message. And this particular message got me pacing a lot quicker because I just felt very convicted by this passage. This passage is really a, a, a warning passage to us as believers that if you claim to be a believer, there are certain things that you will do that will have eternal consequences, both for yourself and those that are in your life. And I can't help but just feel the weight of this because I am a teacher of God's word. And this is really a warning to those that have an audience, uh, that, has an, that has an audience. We get to this particular passage in Mark chapter 9. A lot has happened in, uh, in the life of Christ, and we're reaching kind of like the tail end of his ministry. Chapter 9 begins with this transfiguration where Jesus, for a moment, revealed who he really is. Not that he wasn't showing before, but he showed, him, he showed his, the, the inner circle of his disciples that he is indeed the Son of God. And that the cloud that, uh, of, God's, the, of, the, of the Father surrounded them and told them to, to listen to this beloved Son. And then they were coming down from the mountain, and they were confronted by a crowd of people that wonder why couldn't 
your disciples get this demon out of this little boy. And the reason for that was because they did not have faith in the sense that they did not trust in the Lord for their abilities. Rather, they trusted in their own abilities. And last week, we learned about just this dire warning about how Jesus was going to go to the cross and the disciples did not get it. Instead of trying to contemplate on the realities of Christ having to die and go to the cross and rise again three days later, the people, the disciples, decide to debate amongst themselves on who is the greatest. And Jesus taught them a very valuable lesson about who is or what makes the greatest disciple. That is someone that's willing to be last, someone that's willing to give up his life, that someone that's willing to expend themselves for the kingdom of God. That is true greatness in the eyes of the Lord. Now we get to this passage here, and this is really a continuation of what Jesus is teaching them. And this is, in a lot of ways, Marcus, or really Peter, and uh, Marcus is really the writer, but he's, he, the things that he's learned, he learned from Peter. There's this accelerated pace here, and that he's moving quickly through this narrative to get to the cross. This is the last lesson in the life of Jesus before Capernaum, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, crowds gathered around him again. According to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So he's already at, the, so at chapter 10, verse 1, he's in the region of Judea, and he's slowly going down to Jerusalem, where he's going to be handed over to be killed. It's the final lesson before he goes to the grave. And there is this call that Jesus has for them, to be a radical disciple of Jesus Christ. They are called to go all out for him. They are called to be completely devoted to him, to be uh, drastically changed because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. I know in our modern day terms, we, when we think of the word radical, it, it has this negative connotation that you take some sort of, you're some sort of religious sect that hold to the views of some religion and you take it to the extreme, not realizing that for us as Christians, a radical Christian is really just a normal Christian. To the world, they may think that it's radical because they do not understand or know who God is. But in the eyes of the Lord, radical Christianity to the world is just a faithful Christian in the eyes of God. So when we look at this text, this is a call for us to live radically for the Lord. Jesus is not some sort of add-on that you have to your life. Jesus is your life. The way that you live should demonstrate that. And when he goes through this part of the text, he's going to give us three spheres where we can stumble, three areas in our lives where we need to be mindful of because it will have impact on ourselves and those around us. So there's three spheres Places where we can cause people to stumble, we'll look at the first one here, is the younger believers. The younger believers, verse 42. You notice that Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And there's a contrast here between what he's saying in verse 42 
to what he said earlier in verse 41. In verse 41, he talks about Christian hospitality and how Christians should care for each other because there will be an eternal reward that will be given to them. And this is the opposite because they're supposed to show how Christians are supposed to conduct themselves amongst one another so that they do not stumble into sin. This verse tells us about what Christians are called to do in the life of their, in their own life and how they're not supposed to cause other believers to stumble. It says here, these little ones who believe. And it's much like, I think, a reference back to verse 37 when he was holding this child. And he said that whoever received this little one in my name receives me. He's using this, still this little boy as an image of saying, if you cause one of these little ones who believe, meaning not a child, but more like someone that's young in the faith. If there's someone that's young in the faith and you teach them something that causes them to fall into sin, it is better that you die than to do that. Because bad theology will inevitably, inevitably lead to a bad lifestyle. And Jesus is warning them that you need to be watchful of the things that you teach and the way that you live. And this is a scary reality. That there is a reality in that some believers can cause other believers to act like non-believers. Some believers can cause immature believers to act like non-believers. And Jesus says that if you cause them to stumble, this is going to be the word and the theme that ties this whole sermon together because, this is, because Jesus says this four times in this section here. And the word stumble is exactly what you think it means. It means to make someone trip, to cause them to fall. If you think about a kid, it's like, I don't know if you did this as a kid, but I, I, I've seen it. I'm, I may or may not have done this to someone as a kid, but, you know, when some kid is not looking, you kind of tie their shoelace together, so when they begin to walk, they trip. That's what it's like. You're causing someone to fall on their face. Obviously, this is not in terms of a physical sense, but he's talking about a spiritual sense, that you cause someone to fall or to think to fall into sin. And the reason why they fall into sin is because they think wrongly about who God is or, or have an inaccurate view of God's word. They, their thinking is not right and is not biblical. And it is a scary reality. You have to think and really know as a Christian that you actually are a very influential person. I know that in our day and age, we love that term, I want to be an influencer, but you realize that as Christians, you are an influencer. Maybe you may not have the, the, the mass like, audience or viewership, like, like the celebrities, but you do influence those around you. And there are different ways in which we can cause other people to stumble. One way is that we directly cause them to stumble, meaning we tell other people to do something that is against God's word. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, Solomon writes, My son... <coughs> If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in the wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pits. There is a way in which we cause others to stumble, which is it's just a direct way. And I know it can be... Uh, not, it can be direct in terms of teaching something wrong, or it can be direct in terms of actually committing sin with the person. You can be a person that causes a stumbling block when you, let's say, do something inappropriate with someone of the opposite gender. When you entice them to do something that is clearly against God's word. 
or you can tell a believer to do something that goes against the law. The Bible tells us the law is good in terms of the law gives, God gave the governments that we need to submit to. Generally speaking, the government is good to check evil. And you can be someone that provokes someone to intentionally break the law and in a sense you're causing them to sin. That's what it means but to directly cause someone to stumble. When you tell them something that is explicitly against God's word or you could do it indirect way. Indirect ways is really the way that you live and people just kind of see your life and they think to themselves, if that person does this, then so can I. Romans chapter 14 verse 13 says, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. In the context of Romans chapter 14, it is about Christian liberties. And there are times in our own life where we think, well, it is a Christian liberty, so I'm going to indulge in this. I'm going to enjoy this, not realizing that you are indirectly causing other people to stumble. Now, I know that we don't know other people's weaknesses. But there's a thing. If you do know that is a weakness for someone, you need to be willing to die to yourself so that the other, the weaker believer, will not fall into sin. People will watch you, and they will model their lives after you. And it is for all of us as Christians. When a non-believer looks at your life and they think, oh, you call yourself a Christian, you talk like you and I, that must mean it's okay to talk like this. Or you call yourself a Christian and you dress a certain way, that must mean it's okay for me to dress like you. Or if you spend your money a certain way, a non-believer or even a young believer, when they see your life, they'll think, oh, okay, that's how you spend money, then it's okay for me to do it too not realizing that your, your liberties can indirectly cause someone to stumble in their sin. Or you can cause someone to sin by not correcting them. James chapter 5, James chapter 5, verse 5, James chapter 5, verse 19, 27, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will, can, in, and will cover a multitude of sins. It is our responsibility as Christians to point out sins in, in each other's life, especially if, you, if you're aware of it. If you see your brother's sin, if you see your sister in your faith sin, and you allow them to just continue on in the sin, you are causing them to stumble because in your silence, you're approving of their lifestyle. Now, it's easy to think or be afraid, thinking, well, I don't want to be a, I don't want to judge them. I don't want to um, uh, be a legalist about things. It's not legalistic when you're pointing out sin in the life of another person. It is legalistic if you try to add things to Scripture to prove your, uh, to work your way into heaven or to prove that you're a mature Christian. But it is not legalism when you point out a thing, a sin in their life that's clearly revealed from scripture so you need to be mindful of your own life you are more influential than you think it is actually very easy to cause people to stumble whether it is directly indirectly or being cowardice and not confronting sin in the life of the believer we as christians must realize that our lives as our lives here on earth will either draw people away from the lord or will draw people towards the lord 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 14, he said, But thanks be to God, who always lead us in triumph in Christ, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are being perished. So, or those who are perishing. So you know, Paul is making this distinction that as believers, you're doing something to both believers and non-believers. You're either drawing believers to a greater knowledge of him, or you are a stench to those that are non-believers. Verse 16, to the one an aroma from death to death, and to the, to, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So Paul acknowledges that it is actually hard to live a Christian life, because there are going to be people that are going to be either drawn to the Christ or drawn away from the Lord based on how you live. And if you cause one of these people to stumble, Christ says it's better that you have this thing hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. And I think this actually shows you the compassion of our Savior, that our God hates sin. Our God hates it when some little believer, a young person in the faith, falls into sin. He says, better to have this heavy millstone around your neck. That is around 400 to 1,200 pounds. And this is, there's no way you can survive this. The Gentiles at the time would use this as, I mean, aside from, the Romans would use the the cross as a crucifixion, a way to kill criminals. But other Gentiles would use this as a way to to kill criminals. They'll just tie this thing around their neck, usually a giant rock, and just toss in the ocean. And there's no way a person can survive this. And Jesus is saying that it's better for you to die a very horrible, torturous death than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So you need to ask yourself this question. In what way am I causing others to stumble? Are you getting in the way of other people's growth in Christ? In what ways are you trying to cause others to stumble in in sin? You need to be mindful of your own doctrine and your own life. Because oftentimes the reason why we cause other people to stumble is because there's actually something lacking in our own theology. There's something lacking in our own sanctification. People want to, uh, people who may want to conform others to a, to a standard outside of their own may justify their own sin. Whatever sin you allow in your life, you will subtly promote it in your life and others will be stumbled because of it. You know that God's, um, what God's words are, and you need to repent. And you need to take sin seriously. The, more, the most serious aspect of sin is separation from God. And this is why it's so offensive to the Lord when a young believer falls. Because it's causing them to revert back to their previous state. It's trying to make them separated from the Lord. And whether we realize it or not, we need to be mindful of our own life so that we do not become a stumbling block for other people. So that's the first sphere. Younger believers. Now let's look at a, young, uh, a second sphere, and that's yourself. Yourself as the believer. Verse 43 to 48 If your hand caused you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go to hell into the unquenchable fire. This verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47 does sound very familiar. It sounds like a little pattern here. That's really what it is. He's he's talking about hand and then um, 
Verse 45 talks about your foot, which is where you would go. In verse 47, he talks about your eye, which is things that you see. And in every case, he's saying that you need to get rid of the things that cause you to stumble. And he says here in verse 40, that if your hand caused you to stumble, the same idea caused you to fall, it says you to, tells you to cut it off. Now, the Old Testament is against self-mutilation. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1 tells us that you, you shouldn't cut your own self or, or, <clears throat> or put on tattoos or do things to, uh, to mutilate your body so you could commune with the dead. Now, so people understood what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about physical mutilation here. He's talking about something going on more in the spiritual because you can actually remove all your body parts and not change what, who you are on the inside. You can remove all of these things physically, but your, your soul is still corrupted. So Jesus here is not talking about what you need to physically move, but rather what's going on in your own heart. Yes, there's an aspect of it that you need to cut off things in your life, but he's not talking about physical mutilation here. It says better you enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell. Because, you know, so you chop off one your hand, you have your other hand to sin. I think Jesus' point is very clear here, is that how far would you go to fight sin in your life? What are your weaknesses that you need uh, to give up so you can continue to follow Christ? What are you going to, when are you going to begin to continue to, when are you going to begin to obey the Lord? And you notice in verse 43, 45, and verse 47, all of these things is really it's, it's like a cost type of evaluation. He's trying to tell you, if you have these things in your life, but you go to hell, what is the point? It's better that you lose something in this life and gain heaven than to, than, than, than to gain heaven. Just for example, we had day camp this last week. If I grabbed the biggest prize I was there, I don't know what it was, but I think it's, let's just say it's like a giant stuffed animal. Very limited edition Pokemon thing. All the kids like it. My daughter's really into it right now. That's how I think, that's why I think it is. That's the most valuable prize. If I went up to my daughter and gave her this 2,000 point Pokemon doll, and right next to it, I give her this crumpled up $100 bill, and I, can, and I told her, you can pick one of the two, choose one. She will instantly, instantly just go towards the giant Pokemon doll. And you, as an observer, will think, why? Take the $100. It's way more valuable than the Pokemon doll. Or if you think about maybe in, this, in the more real sense, the Old Testament. When, when the Old Testament, when Esau was willing to give up his birthright for a stew, and Hebrews talk about how he was begging for, wanting it back, even though he was pleading for it in tears. Because in the moment, certain people did not understand how certain things actually value more than others. The, whether it's a doll or, or, or a bowl of stew, they cared for something that seemed delightful in the moment while forsaking something that has greater effect or something that has greater value in the long run. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here, that there are things in your life that is not as valuable as you think. The pleasures, the sin that you are holding in your life is not that great in relative 
to having heaven. Because even though he doesn't say it here, he's implying here that if you hold on to certain sins, you're going to go to hell for those sins. And if you are not willing to let those sins go, this is what's going to happen to you. It's, it's, it's Christ calling believers to have a radical separation from sin. And I understand each and every single one of us as believers, you'll have seasons where you overcome sin and you have seasons where you're uh, falling into sin. But you have to keep fighting those sins. You have to keep cutting those things out of your life so that you can continue to pursue Christ-likeness. You can't expect to live a holy life, a life that's pleasing to the Lord, or even expect to go to heaven if you're constantly living in sin. Jesus continues, if your, eye, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. Now again, if, uh, if the hand is things that you do, that means it's every category, everything that you can think of what you can do with your hand, foot is everywhere that you can go. And I know in our digital age, there, it's not necessarily physical places that cause sin, but it's definitely the place we go to on our cellular phone or our iPads. What are the things that you're going to that's causing you to stumble into sin? Eternity is at stake when it comes to fighting your sin. In reality, the older you get, the older you are in the faith, the more you'll discover how many more sins you have to, you have to fight. And it's a good thing that the Lord has, has matures us, has show us areas in our life that we need to work on. Don't go and try to protect your sin. Don't go near sin. Protect yourself from sin. Cut those things off in your life that is tempting you or causing you potentially life in hell for all of eternity. You notice that I skipped verse 44 and 46 uh, in some of your Bibles, it might have a little bracket there. And the meaning, the reason why I skipped it is because uh, this is probably looking, this is called textual criticism, meaning we Christian theologians that study uh, the oldest uh, and the best manuscript to decide, to discern whether or not it's in the original scrolls. And uh, when they did the research, they found older scrolls over time. Uh, they found this particular passage and, and realized it was not there. Uh, this isn't to say that the idea is not there because it does show up again in verse 48. But what most likely happened was that when the, when, when the Bible was being copied from uh, one person to another and from generation to generation, maybe one person decided to copy this, uh, just add, add this verse here to make it sound more poetic. And because of, of that, the next generation people saw that and felt so intimidated by erasing it that they decided to leave it there. And over time, people had such a high view of God's word that they did not want to remove it. In fact, you can, there's a, that's actually the reason why sometimes there's like different scrolls that seem to contradict one another because uh, the original scribes in the past did not want to destroy the manuscript, so they decided to bury it somewhere. And then once they get discovered, people try to go against it. But we'll talk more about this in Mark chapter 16 at the very end of Mark. But that's just the general answer to why uh, I did not, I'm not going to teach those two particular verses because it does show up in verse 48. The idea is still there, but we'll get to more of that in detail somewhere down the line. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Now, 
the I is actually the one that might be the most difficult. Because if there are things in your life that you cut off with your hands in terms of things that you do or places you go, the I is the most difficult. Um, because it's what you see. It's what you uh, see around you. You walk around, especially in our, in our day where we're visual and there's all these ads and TikTok and all of these uh, Instagram, social media things that, that just kind of try to get our attention with our eyes. It's competing for our, uh, for our attention. It's easy to fall into sin. Are you mindful of the fact that your eye, it really is a window to your soul? The things that you put into your eye, the things that you allow, the things that you see is going to have an impact on your life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, it said, but I say to you that, uh, oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, it says, the eye is a lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a that passage here is just talking about having true treasure and what you love most. And your eyes can oftentimes tell you what you love and what you cherish. If you're gazing at things that are sinful, that means that there's darkness inside of you. If you're looking at things that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord, that reveals what's going on inside of your own heart. In fact, in the, in the parallel passage in Matthew, it says... In, in, in not just this one says throw out, but in, in the Matthew passage, for the hand and the foot, it, do, it does say cut off and cast it out. Meaning it's not just you cut off and you stop, but you have to get away from it. And particularly things with your eyes. This is the hardest one because we're so like, connected to our devices that will make us fall into sin. Now understand, when I'm talking about the eye here, I'm not strictly talking about sexual Im uh, images. Although that is one huge category. I'm talking about everything else that causes you to sin. Meaning if you look at social media and it makes you discontent, then maybe the thing is you need to get rid of social media. If you look at the things you want to buy and it makes you covet or make you envy at what other people have, then it's probably best for you to get rid of social media. Whatever your eye causes you, to, causes you to be more like the world and less like Christ, those are the places that you cannot go. Those are things you need to cut out. Because it says that it's better to have one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell. Again, your eye is a gateway to your soul. And Satan and the world can scheme to influence you to try to make you love this world more than the world that is to come. What are you watching that will make you, that will cause you to stumble, to make you sin? Is it something that you see on YouTube? Is it something you see on TV? If it is the arts or the movies? What you let into your eyes will eventually get into your soul. Are those places in your mind the place that will lead you to hell? Are you being amused by the things that killed our Savior? I know there are so many of us that probably have seen things that we wish that we can take back, that we can look back and wish, I wish I did not see that. It's these regrets that, uh, that we want to keep ourselves from, but the greatest regret would be that if we were to continue gazing on things of the world, 
that would eventually get us thrown into hell because of it. Because essentially all sin that commits <coughs> that we commit with our eyes is ultimately trying to take our attention away from the Lord to worship something else and to find satisfaction in something besides our Savior. And the warning that Jesus gives is this, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. He's, this, this image here in, um, from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, and the reason why this was, this was used is because this imagery of this, I mean, the word is Gehenna for hell, but the picture that the, the Jews and even Gentiles understood is, is basically just a, we use the term dumpster fire. It, it's kind of like that. They used to have a place outside where they just burn garbage. It's a place that just seems to not end. They have all the, every single waste that you can possibly think of. They'll throw it there and it'll just keep burning and burning and burning. And that's what this, this is what hell is like. It says the worm, and the worm is, I think we think of like, Worms that become little butterflies. That's not like bugs life type of thing. Think of it more like maggots. What do maggots do? They're trying to destroy something, right? They're trying to eradicate a, 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 usually like an animal or just kind of decay things. And the fire, it just burns, all, it burns things all away. And Jesus is saying, and in hell, your body does not decay. You'll have this body that's supposed to just continually suffer because of the sins that you committed, because of the things that you watch, because of the places that you go, because of the things that you've done. Those things that you would not let go of, the things that you hold on to, those are the things that's going to throw you into hell. And there's just a reality that sin is very dangerous. Are you placing uh, are, are you placing or running towards sin, or are you running away from sin? In what ways are you making yourself stumble? Because you have to think in, this, in these terms. You have to think in terms of eternity is at stake. This is not a battle for some of us. This is a battle for all of us. Each and every single one of us have some sin in our life that we need to kill. We have to have a radical separation from it. How radical are you when it comes to getting rid of sin in your life? Sometimes the most obvious answer to fight sin is just to flee and get away from sin. The reality is that no sin is worth going to hell for. Yes, our sinful flesh is still part of us, but it does not rule us. We have new desires as new creatures. We have a new birth. That means we have a new destiny it is better for us to repent now, no matter how brutal and difficult it may be, than to be cast into hell because of that sin. Am I saying then that you have no assurance of your faith? No, I'm saying that if you are a true believer, you're always going to be wrestling with this. What I'm saying here is that there are going to be people here, possibly here in the church, that call themselves Christians that refuse to fight sin. Those are the ones that I'm concerned for. People that realize that they are living a life of sin, but yet choose to hide it from everyone else, not realizing that God sees you. God knows every single one of your sins. One of the songs that I try to teach my kids, it's be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little hands, what you do. 
for the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, where you go. This is a song that we sing to our kids, and it's really from this passage, that we have to be mindful because our God is looking down on us. And yet you know that even though we fail, there is a tremendous amount of grace for those that are genuinely believers. You see this, and you want to turn from their sin because how great is our God that is willing to die for the sins that we've done in the past, that we've sometimes done in the present life, and even the future sins. But that wrestling with sin is always going to be there. And if, you're, if you kill one sin, you're going to find as you grow, you're going to find other areas of sin. And that's where the constant battle is going to be. All sin can fit in these categories. Things that you see, things that you go to, or things that you do. And you need to be mindful of those areas and cut those things out of your life so that you can not earn your way to heaven, but rather you can find joy in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, Moses described as someone that was willing to give up the fleeting pleasures of sin. Yes, sin is pleasurable for a moment, but again, if you think about just the value of things, is that momentary pleasure that you keep having to go back to, is that worth eternity in hell? It's like the difference between the toy and the money, or different between the stew and the birthright, and it is the same thing between your sin and your eternity. So the first sphere is younger believers, the second sphere is yourself, and the third sphere is other believers. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, usually, I say this if you're an adult too, that every time Bill assigns me to a t passage or topic, I always, in the back of my mind, think of that, av you know, the Star Wars scene, like, it's a trap. I think that. I think Bill, every time he assigns me a t passage, there is some sort of theological knot that he wants me to un untie or try to resolve some major doctrinal issue. And this time, he didn't assign this passage, but I assigned myself, so I shot myself in the foot, because this passage here, different commentators have different interpretations, and I think there's like, I read like 10 commentaries, and there's like five different interpretations, and one of them was just like, I don't know, they just skipped the whole passage, it's just blank, I was like, oh, what a waste of money, um, but this is a very, it seems out of place, what does it mean for if everyone, for everyone will be salted with fire? Again, this is my view of how I think it is. It is one of the views that's in the commentaries, but here's the one that I, I think this is what it means. I think when it talks about how everyone's be salted with fire, it is a mixed metaphor here. He's talking about two different things. And what does it mean to be salted with fire? It means that you, 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 when you think of salt, you're putting something on something. So you, who, he's saying everyone will be, have some fire poured onto them. So I do think that this is speaking of trials in your life that's going to refine you. There's going to be things in your life that, you, that Christians are going to go through that's going to make you more like Christ. Um, you're either all in for Christ or you're not with Christ at all. But if you are with Christ, if he truly is your master, then the reality is that you are going to 
be sanctified just through life trials. This is reminiscent of First Peter, First Peter, First um, Peter, t- uh, chapter one, verse seven. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, thus the fire is the same word as used here and in Mark may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think in, in, in First Peter continues on with this idea of just suffering and being refined by the Lord. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. And that's why I think even Peter picks it up in First Peter, because he remembers what Jesus said about how everyone will be salted with fire. So this means that as you progressively grow as you progressively suffer in your life the natural result should be that you will become more and more mature in the faith which is why in verse 50 it says salt is good but if salt becomes unsalty with what will you make it salty again now i know our modern vernacular when we think we're salty it's like jealousy or bitter or envy kind of thing that's not the context of what jesus is saying here he's talking about the salt, which generally does not lose its flavor, and the only reason why salt would lose its flavor is because the salt itself is impure. It's mixed with some other rocks, and people think it looks like salt, but when you taste it, it doesn't really taste like salt. And usually what happens to those is that they'll just be thrown away. They're just basically just rocks, useless rocks. So Jesus is saying, here, have salt in yourselves. If you call yourself a Christian you're, and you're salted with fire, it should make you useful. But if you're not useful, if you lose the taste of being a salt, of what it's supposed to be, and Christ talks about that in other passages, how we're the salt of the, of, the, of the world and we're supposed to be a salt and light in the world. So if that is true, that means that what Jesus is trying to get at here is that the way that you live should, is going to be, you're going to be refined by fire and the way that you treat each other is going to be different. Because you are different. You've become more mature in the faith. Notice it said, have salt in yourself and be peace with one another. It means you have to care for other people's spiritual health. And I think the reason why this ends this way, because if you remember early on, or even last week's message, the, the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. They clearly were not mature. They were useless in so many ways. They couldn't cast out demons because of their own pride. And even in their pride, they're arguing with one another. And they have not, un- they have not gone through the ring yet to get themselves humble to realize that they, in order for them to be used by God, they need to be humbled. So they haven't gone through those rigors and those trials yet. And this is why Jesus, I think, ends it this way. That's why I tell them to make peace with one another. If you grow as a believer, if you're constantly maturing in the faith, the natural result is that you will let go of the sins of what other, pe- other believers have done to you. Other believers, I know it's hard to believe at times, but sometimes believers rub other believers the wrong way. But as you go through life, you realize those trials are just really petty. All interpersonal conflicts that we have with one another in the grand scheme of things is incredibly petty. But yet sometimes in our own sinful pride, we hold on to it because we think well, he said something very mean to me, or he did ministry in a way that I did not like it. Those things are completely petty, and oftentimes it takes trials in your life to see that, to give you that perspective to realize, yeah, that doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. Let bygones be bygones. It takes trials for you to see that. 
And Jesus is telling them that, that yes, salt is good, but don't be useless. If you understand that the Lord will find you, that means you will reconcile with one another. You will find that the Lord will cause those frictions and tensions and divisions to go away because those things are an offense to the Lord. God is never pleased by the grudges that you hold against one another. Do you see that disunity is also a form of stumbling? Because if you claim to be a believer and yet you're not willing to forgive, if you're not willing to extend grace, you're telling other people that this is how our Savior is like. Our Savior would not show grace to those that ask for forgiveness. You're, you're basically telling the world and even other believers that this is how our Lord acts. If you refuse to show grace, if you refuse to make peace with one another, then the question is not, do you understand this passage? I think the question is whether or not you understand Christ himself. Do you, ha- do you personally have a right relationship with the Lord? Because the Bible is very clear that if you're not willing to forgive one another, then the Lord is not going to forgive you. Because you haven't fully experienced that, that if you understand what Christ, Christ has done for you, how much he's forgiven you, every small thing that other people have done to you means nothing. And you're willing to be lavish with your grace and forgiveness because God was so kind to you. Sin never stays in this lane. And you may, and you can, you allow, and if you allow yourself to fall into sin, it will impact your life and those around you. We look through these three spheres. We think about younger believers. We think about ourselves and those around us. I think the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that you need to take sin seriously. Again, I said this earlier, but there is no sin worth going to hell for. There is no sin worth going to hell for. And yet, despite the fact that we've, we constantly fall, God is still so kind to forgive us. We, if you see areas in your life where you have stumbled and stumbled, and whether you cause other people to stumble, whether you cause yourself to stumble, or whether you cause other believers, mature believers to stumble, whatever it may be, God has given you grace today to repent. And that's what should draw us close to the Lord we realize how kind and how loving he is towards us. How can we not let go of sin if, we can, if Christ has given us his own life? If Christ is beautiful in our sight, then sin will progressively become more and more disgusting and ugly. Choose the right thing. Choose holiness over sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you just for this very convicting reminder of how we need to take sin seriously. Lord, whether it is things we see or things that we do or wherever we go, Lord, we know that we can only resist sin and fight sin and cut off sin in our life by your grace. Help us um, with that, Lord. And Lord, if there are areas in our life where we find ourselves causing other people to stumble, may you uh, convict us of those areas and make us repent cause us to turn from those areas, whether it be doctrine or, or, or our lifestyle. Lord, help us see the errors of our way so that we can bring and draw people closer to you as opposed to away from you. Lord, thank you for your word. We're thankful for your son for dying on the cross for our sin so that we can have ears to hear your word, Lord. Fill our minds with truth and cause our heart to love you more each and every single day. 
We love you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.